You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I have seen a lot of superhero movies in my life, but I'll tell you tonight, my favorite superhero movie is The Incredibles. Have you seen The Incredibles? I know it's been out for a little while, but that's the best of them, I think. It's kind of a meta. What interests me about The Incredibles is that the big problem in that movie is not so much that there's a villain who wants to destroy the world, which is kind of what... It's that the world doesn't want to be saved. Think about that for a second. Um, The bystanders in this story have kind of gotten fed up with all the drama and the destruction and so they make it a crime to be a super. And actually, the superheroes have to go through some kind of witness protection program to be assimilated back into normal suburban life. And uh, there's a scene at the beginning of the movie. It's kind of a montage. It's like an old newsreel, black and white kind of a clip telling this part of the story. And in this scene, the narrator says, in a stunning turn of events, a superhero is being sued for saving someone who apparently didn't want to be saved. The plaintiff, Oliver Sansweet, who was foiled in his attempted suicide by Mr. Incredible, has filed suit against the famed superhero in Superior Court. And then there's a flashback. We see uh, Sansweet, Mr. Sansweet, uh, falling from a building. It's very tall. Mr. Incredible at the last minute swoops in uh, just before impact, and they smash through a glass plate window into a, a corporate office building. Uh, but now in court, Mr. Sansweet's wearing a neck brace, of course. And Sansweet's lawyer says, Mr. Sansweet didn't ask to be saved. Mr. Sansweet didn't want to be saved. And the injury received from Mr. Incredible's so-called actions causes him daily pain. To which Mr. Incredible, incensed across the courtroom, shouts, Hey, I saved your life! And Sansweet can't control himself. He says, You didn't save my life. You ruined my death. Which I think is a priceless line. But I I think the creators of this story are putting their finger on something really deep inside of our culture. This idea that today we don't really want to be rescued. We we, we like superheroes, but we don't really want to need one in our own life, right? Well, we're looking at Jesus as the hero of our hope in this series. We're looking at four texts in the Apostle Paul's writings. Each one gets at the grand story arc of the whole Bible. Creation, redemption, mission, and then glorification. And and we're going to see that Jesus is the hero of our hope. If we want to have hope in Jesus Christ, this is what it will look like. We saw last week that Jesus is our maker, creation. Tonight we're going to see that Jesus is our rescuer, our redemption. But before we jump into that, I'd like to just ask you two questions, just to get you thinking about this topic. The first question is this, do you want to be rescued? Think about your life. Do you want to be rescued? And then the other question is, what does it mean to live with rescue at the heart of your story? Well, let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. Would you open up your Bible, please, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You find that on page 949. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And why should I get all the fun? Why don't you guys join me in reading this text? Uh, Let's read it corporately together. If you're able, would you please stand? And I will read this aloud, knowing that our Savior is listening. When I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it or are coming to believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. 
You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. You might want to keep that book open as we do, if I'm not too late in telling you that. Uh, it's back at Ephesians 2, chapter 1. Especially verse 8. Look at this verse 8 with me for a moment again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now that's a rescue story. There are a few theological words in there, so let's go back and just define uh, the three big ones. First of all, we read, for by grace. Grace. What is grace? I, my definition of grace is complete gift. Grace is a complete gift. If you do something for someone by grace, you do something for someone who could not do it for themselves, and frankly, who does not deserve to have it done at all. Complete gift. Saved, the second theological word that's there, means, I think briefly, a rescued. Uh, if something is saved, it is restored from a state of peril to a state of welfare or wholeness, what the Old Testament calls shalom or peace. Saved, rescued. And then the third word there, faith, it means simple trust. That's my brief definition, simple trust. It's actually a response if someone does something for you, you say yes to them. It, 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 this response is a response of entrusting yourself to another faith. So if we sub in those words to verse 8, we would read, By a complete gift, you have been rescued through simple trust. Let me tell you a, re a rescue story. Let me remind you of this story. About five years ago, Don Enriquez was uh, at work when he heard a loud noise. He looked up and the lights went out. Terrifying moment. He was deep in a mine shaft in Chile with 33 other miners. They were trapped. They were 2,300 feet below the surface. In, in that moment, they were as far as you could possibly be from the world of the living. Uh, 2,000 feet above their heads, there was this world of life and bright color and family and friends. And, 
You remember this, the people up there, they didn't even know if, if these guys had survived. They had to assume they were dead, or if they weren't, they would be dead soon. It was just a tomb down there. But Don Henriquez had hope. He turned to the man who was working immediately next to him, and he said, God is the only way out of this. Enriquez has hope because Enriquez is a follower of Jesus Christ, and the men would begin to ask him to help them pray for rescue. They were in a room, a chamber that they began to call the refuge, and Enriquez would teach them all to, to kneel and, and pray. He'd say, Lord, we aren't the best men, but Lord, have pity on us. You know now there's a new movie out called 33 about the story in the book, which is the basis for the movie. Hector Tobar writes, It's a simple statement, but it strikes several of the men hard. No somos los mejores hombres. We aren't the best men. Victor Segovia knows he drinks too much. Victor Zamora is too quick to anger. Pedro Cortez thinks about the poor father he's been to his young daughter. He left the girl's mother, and he hasn't even done the basic fatherly thing of visiting his little girl, even though he knows his absence is inflicting a lasting hurt on her. Enriquez continues in prayer, Jesus Christ, our Lord, let us enter the sacred throne of your grace. Consider this moment of difficulty of ours. We are sinners and we need you. Well, God heard that prayer. Sixty-nine days later, there would be dust and then a hole and a, a tunnel that was opened up, a shaft 2,000 feet long and just a little less than two feet wide, enough for the broad shoulders of a miner to squeeze up. The rescuers on the surface had built, they'd manufactured a rescue pod, a capsule like a little spaceship, a rocket. They could lower down through this chamber, and the men had to decide. One by one, would they entrust themselves into this vehicle? Would they put their weight on the weight of the vehicle and risk the 10-minute ride back up to the surface? This passage... It's fascinating to me in the original language. There are uh, uh, seven verses that make up the first sentence. In other words, the first sentences, seven verses are all one sentence in Greek. We don't even get the main verbs of this sentence that Paul writes until verses five and six. And a little grammar lesson, those, five, those three main verbs all have one thing in common, and that's, that is that they are compound words with the word for with tacked to the front. They all have the word with uh, at the front of them. So Paul says, you have been made alive with Christ. You have been raised up with Christ. You have been seated with Christ. If you want a picture of this in terms of superheroes, you could imagine that God the Father has dispatched his son, armed with the superhero of his humanity, breaking through time and space to this imperiled planet 
in a state of peril, he comes down to meet us at the bottom, at the depths, in the depths of our despair, at the bottom of our sin and transgression and death. He meets you there and me there, and he takes his superhero cape in his arms and wraps us joyfully in his embrace. And then when he breaks out of his own tomb and comes back to life, we come back to life with him. And then when he rises up, holding us firmly, we rise up with him. And then he seats us with himself at the right hand of the Father in this place of life and light and color and family. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And the only decision, the only thing you and I have to do is decide how we'll respond to that. Will we put our weight, will we put our simple trust in the rescue pod of our Savior Jesus Christ? Paul is writing to a group of believers in Asia Minor, Ephesus, and he wants them to know that they have a rescue story in their lives, just like I so badly want you to know that you have a rescue story in your life. You do. And I don't know whether you never knew that before or whether you're like me and just keep forgetting it. I think God has us here, myself included, to remember, to be reminded that there's a rescue story in the heart of your own story. And the fact is that the followers of Jesus have always been liable to forget, even in Jesus' own day. Let me tell you a little story in John chapter 8. John tells us about a time when Jesus is with some believers. They're Jewish believers. They do believe. And Jesus looks at them and he says to them, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Kind of a famous verse, so maybe you've heard it before. John eight thirty-two. But do you know what verse 33 says? You know what comes next? Jesus has just said, the truth will make you free. And verse 33 says this. They answered him, hey, we're descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Now, does anybody in this room ever remember a time any of the descendants of Abraham were, were slaves? Anybody? Come on. This is the Exodus, right? The, the 40, 400 years of slavery in Egypt to the Pharaoh and all that stuff. The Exodus is the paradigmatic rescue story, the whole Old Testament. And what's happening here? Jesus is just discovering that his own followers have forgotten their identity. They've forgotten they've got a rescue story in the heart of their own story. How could you forget this? Well, we forget too. You and I forget, I, I think, in the 21st century because we live in a culture that doesn't want a rescue story. You and I live in a culture that wants a success story in the heart of our lives, not a rescue story. So interesting, last Saturday I was listening to NPR and I heard Sandra Bullock tell Scott Simon, I quote, Our world has gotten to a place where the almighty win, W-I-N, has become so powerful. Success at all costs, you know, and we're being sold so much. And I find myself drawn into it. And I think that does lead to depression. And I think that does lead to, oh my gosh, my life is not good enough. I need to win more in order to be more accepted and more viable. That's an interesting word because it means more alive. Hope doesn't come from success. It comes from rescue. 
I have nothing wrong with success. I like success. But I want to tell you, if you want hope, you need more than that. You need rescue. And if the world is going to see Jesus in you, it's, it's not in your success that they're going to see it. It's in your rescue story that they will see it. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to follow him through states of peril again and again and again. Now, let me ask you to do something I don't often do. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you have the courage to do it. Uh, I'm going to ask you very honestly, how many of you would say you're in a state of peril tonight? Whether it's small or large, there's something going on in your life. You say, I'm there. I'm in a state of peril tonight. Would you be bold enough to raise your hand? Keep those hands up. How many of you have another person in your life that is important to you? You'd say they are in a state of peril, and it hurts you just to know that. They're in a state of peril. How many of you would say, I read the news, and I look at the world, and I go, now I think I am in a state of peril when I see what's happening, right? Okay, who doesn't have their hand up? Okay, you're in a state of denial right now. That's what that's called. Because we're all in a state of peril. And here's what I want you to know. Here's the good news. What the Apostle Paul is pressing into us tonight is that even in your state of peril, you are also in a state of welfare in Jesus Christ. You have been rescued. Even in your peril, you can be within Jesus Christ in a state of rescue. Now, look, it's complete. It's absolutely finished, in, spiritually speaking. But in terms of um, emotionally, in terms of physically, in terms of socially, it's going to take some time for that rescue story to work its way out in your life and in all of creation. We're going to talk about that more when we get to the fourth arc of glorification. But pay attention to the rescue story. In Jesus, you've found a state of welfare in the middle of your state of peril. And it comes from grace. Grace. Just think of this story of the whole Bible. When God introduces himself to his people, his basic self-identification in the Old Testament is this. He, he says, this is who I am. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Our God is a rescuing God. The psalmist says, God is our salvation, because the psalmist knows our God is a rescuing God. Do you know what the name Jesus means? Jesus means the Lord saves because our God is a rescuing God. Jesus himself says, uh, the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost because Jesus is a rescuing God. And the Apostle Paul, when he thinks about his own struggles and talks about it in the second epistle to the Corinthians, he says, he who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. On him we have set our hope that he will rescue us again. He says, rescue is at the center of my life. This is my story. So let me give you three reasons. Three reasons to live with rescue at the heart of your own story. You're going to need some reasons because, believe me, the success narrative is really hard to bump out. So the first one is this. People with a rescue story move past their past. You might want to write these down. People with a rescue story move past their past. In other words, grace gives you a future. Notice that the Apostle Paul has this rhythm. He says, you were, but God. You were, but God. This is kind of the architecture of this passage. You were hurt, but God. You were cruel, but God. You were sick, but God. You were addicted, but God. In the first three verses of this passage, the Apostle wants his readers to reflect on their past, on their history. Look at what's been driving you through the past. And he has three things. He talks about what we would say is conformity to the culture, uh, spiritual emptiness, 
And finally, this compulsion to satisfy my every desire. These things have been driving you, and he wants you to kind of reflect on that now and deconstruct it a little bit in light of grace. What does it mean to move from unbelief to belief? Well, let's ask the alcoholic. Once the alcoholic meets Jesus Christ and comes into a state of of grace, she now has the capacity to forgive herself for her past. And she can't get rid of the past, but what she can do is incorporate that past into a new future. And so she has now the courage to ask herself, what was it that I was anesthetizing all of these years? What's the fundamental reality that's there? And take that reality and that pain and now bring it to Jesus, add it to a state of grace and begin to incorporate that grace in that area of her life into a new way of being. Pete Wilson says, your past is not your past if it's still impacting your present. But people with a rescue story move past their past. That's the first thing. The second reason to live with a rescue story at the heart of your story is that people with a rescue story are free to take risks. Grace gives you boldness. You're now living on the other side of of your own death. Do you notice what the Apostle Paul says when he says, you were dead? I mean, that's kind of awkward to say to somebody, you were dead. What does he mean by that? When Jesus died, if you're by faith identifying with Jesus, with Jesus, when he dies, you also died. And now you're living on the other side of your own funeral. What can they do to you now? You're already dead. All the rest is upside opportunity. Go for it. That's why you're such a go-for-a-group-of-people at UPC. I love that. You're now free to take risks. If you don't have grace, you can't afford to take risks. Without grace, you can't afford to take the hard class. You can't afford to cross the room to ask that person out. You can't afford to take the interview on the big job. You can't afford to leave your current job and start that new venture ministry or some other business. But with grace, you know, what's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? Because I'm going to screw this up. Yeah, I, I know I'll screw this up. Well, I'll still be secured. I'll still be loved. If you move from unbelief to belief in this area of your life, what you're going to find is the worst that can happen is you end up giving up your false image of yourself as a superhero. (laughs) You don't have to be the kind of person who can break through a wall or jump a building in a single bound. You're just the bystander. You already have a superhero in your life. His name is Jesus. I love uh, those sports pages with just uh, Seattle Times, just... Uh, a few days ago, maybe it was Saturday, it said, uh, Peter Carroll is a great success because he used to be, catch this, a great failure. And if that seems goofy, it's because you've never been a dead man. That's the Seattle Times. That's what Apostle Paul is saying. People with a rescue story are free to take great risks. Three, people with a rescue story embrace people with empathy. Empathy. I want to suggest that grace gives you a future, it gives you a boldness, but it also gives you a ministry. This is what Paul's talking about in verse 10 when he starts talking about the good works for which you were created beforehand. He's saying that rescue story becomes a ministry in your life as you share it, talk about it, as you live it out. Think about these 33 miners. I mean, they've got a great story now. They've got a book and movie, but your story's better. Your story's better than that. God has rescued you. This is a great story. As you move from unbelief to belief in that area of pain in your life, you have a gift to give other people who share that same pain. Do you know the hardest person to have compassion on in the world? 
It's not your enemy. It's that person you see in the mirror. It's yourself. If you can get to a place where because of Jesus' grace in your life, you can have compassion on yourself in the midst of your hurt and pain, then when you come across other people who carry that same hurt and pain in their lives, you have a gift to give them. It's your rescue story. After 33 years in the police force, Lieutenant Jack Cambria was recently retired, and uh, the Wall Street Journal did a tribute to him, and in this article, they asked him, he, he's the top hostage negotiator for 10 years, ran the negotiate, hostage negotiation team for the NYPD, and they asked him, what makes a successful hostage negotiator? I have kids, so I wanted the answer to this question. He says, successful negotiators must, he said, he said it's empathy, empathy. Successful negotiators must, quote, experience the emotion of love at one point in their life to know what it means to have been hurt in love at one point in their life. I mean, this guy's talking people off of ledges. A successful negotiator must know success and perhaps most important to know what it means to know failure. Empathy. People with a rescue story embrace people with empathy. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Friends, you have a rescue story in your life. Now, I doubt that the Apostle Paul, before he met Jesus personally, risen on the road to Damascus, would have accepted uh, these first three verses of this passage. I, I'm just guessing that if Apostle Paul read that, he'd say, there's no way I believe that. And in fact, I've read this passage myself with a lot of people who look at that and go, I don't believe that at all. I think you'd be in company with, with Paul because he had a success narrative in his life. Think about it. Culturally, he was a Roman citizen by birth. Uh, uh, spiritually, he was an extremely pious man. The great Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. He was a, a rabbi. He had one of the best educations in the ancient world. He had success in so many ways. When he met Jesus, the contrast between the way his life was with Jesus and the way his life was without Jesus is so stark, he could look back on all of that, even success, and go, man, it was like I was dead then. It was like I was dead. I was living a graceless life. I was running around criticizing people for what they weren't. I was holding people accountable to the law. I was persecuting Christians, putting them in jail. But when I met Jesus, I came face to face with grace. And now, now there's so much grace in my life. I'm just flooded with grace. And I feel so fully alive, so fully alive that it's like I've already gone to heaven. And yet he still lives in a state of peril. He had a lot of struggle. I want you to imagine UPC living fully out of our rescue story. What would that be like? I'll tell you one thing it would be like. We wouldn't be measuring ourselves by the success narrative of our neighbors. We wouldn't be concerned about our size or our wealth or our influence. We would be measuring ourselves by the rescue story. We would concern ourselves with are we, how well are we embracing the least and the last and the lost we would be concerned about, is this a safe community for people to bring their brokenness, for, for people to fail in, for people to raise questions and bring doubts to? Is this a community where our neighbors find forgiveness and restoration and healing? Do we protect our children and care for our elderly? The rescue narrative. You know, the day that the miners would come up from the dead in that shaft... 
the, the youngest member of that team named Jimmy Sanchez sent a note up above on the last day. And in the note, what he said was, he said, there are not 33 of us down here, as it turns out. There are 34. Can you imagine the surprise? What did he mean by that? Well, he said this, literally, quote, God has never left us down here. The 34th member of the team. Friends, God won't leave you either. Jesus is your rescuer. I love that line. I, I want to send you out with it tonight. It came from the Incredibles. You ruined my death. I love that. Can't we say that to Jesus as well? You ruined my death. You have made me so alive. And I want to just tell you how that the Incredibles movie ends, uh, not because it has anything to do with anything. Um, I just kind of like the ending. Um, at the end of the movie, there's this like super mole who comes burrowing up on a big thing that's like a big screw or a drill into a parking lot. And he's got a megaphone and he rises up. And this is what he says. Behold the underminer. I am always beneath you, but nothing is beneath me. I like that. <laughs> and I guess the point, if there has to be a point to everything in a sermon, is that the work of the superhero continues. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, truly nothing is beneath you. Although you are the king existing in the form of equality with God, you do not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you've emptied yourself, taken the form of a servant. You've humbled yourself to the point of a cross. You've come to the bottom to embrace us at our worst. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. We depend on it tonight. We pray for those among us who are in states of peril this evening. We pray that you'll pour out extra measure of your grace. Help them trust you. And for the rest of us who can just get out of our own peril enough, we pray that you'll give us strength to step into the peril of others with a rescue story and a word of grace. And Jesus, we pray that you'll do it for your sake because we know that your plan is to display for all of the ages to come the loving kindness of your grace towards us. Thank you. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.